The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. If you don't uh, have a Bible, we have some at the doorway. You can uh, take that with you. If you uh, don't own a Bible, I want to uh, just simply give you that as a gift. We believe faith comes by hearing, uh, hearing the Word of God. And so if you don't own one, we want to uh, bless you with uh, a Bible. My name's Eric. Uh, I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and again, we've been going through Nehemiah since the beginning of the year, uh, and we're in chapter six. So before we get into that uh, chapter, I just want to uh, tell you something that, that may shock some of you. And so I've been following Jesus for about 25 years of my life. Uh, I'll be 48 this year, and so I came to faith uh, through uh, some relationships in college. And ever since then, I felt like the Lord was, was calling me and leading me to uh, understand his word and, and to, uh, to minister uh, in the ways that God has called me to minister. Uh, and, but I want to tell you that over the 25 years of following Jesus, that life doesn't get easier. Some of you have been a Christian longer than I, and you can testify to this, right? I, I will tell you, that following Jesus uh, has filled my life with, with an unexpressible joy in, in a way that maybe the world can't necessarily comprehend uh, and, and maybe even in a way that I can't even uh, explain to you. Uh, but there is joy in Christ. But let me tell you, following Jesus isn't easy. Amen? And so if you're a Christian and you say, you know what, uh, uh, my life has kind of gotten easier, then I would say you're probably not following Jesus, at least not that close. Because what we see when Jesus really starts to start his ministry is that life starts to get a little difficult for him. And so what I'm wanting to tell you this morning is that there is a resistance when it comes to us living a faithful life in Jesus Christ. And that resistance, it doesn't, it doesn't relent, it doesn't slow down, it doesn't dissipate, but rather uh, it, it continues to grow the more and more we follow closer to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you that this resistance and this opposition, uh, it doesn't stop, it won't stop until we fi finally stand face to face with Jesus Christ himself. And so many times this resistance comes through something we call temptation. Everyone say temptation. Now, temptation kind of comes in various forms. And what I mean by that is, is there is a temptation to do the things that God ultimately doesn't desire us to do. And so temptation can come in a form of, you know, here's the list of, of rights and wrongs, right? Uh, and so don't do this and don't do this. And so we're kind of tempted, you know, to, to steal a cookie from the cookie jar. I mean, and so we're tempted to lie or tempted to steal. But, but what I want to tell you is that most of the times, those necessarily aren't necessarily the temptations that we ultimately face. A lot of temptation that we face is actually comes from not doing the things that God calls us to do. Not just, oh, don't do this, but rather, as a Christian, the temptation is actually higher for me, at least, to just say, that's not necessary. And so we are tempted to dilute our faith. We're tempted to question our faith. We're tempted constantly to compromise the gospel. 
to even quiet the gospel within us. We're tempted with, with things of distraction and to avoid the things that God has called us to as Christ's followers. And so the great temptation is, is oh, just, you know, don't, don't put Christ on, on high. Just kind of put him somewhere in the middle so that you can kind of reflect some of him. And so the temptation to walk away from Christ, walk away from serving the king, and instead the temptation is just to simply serve ourselves. The temptation comes to just follow our own self. The temptation comes to just give in to my selfish desires. Anyone ever felt that? And so there's times in faith where we are kind of white hot for Jesus. You know what I mean? I mean, early on, it was like, I want to tell the world about the grace and the love of Christ. And, and, so, and so there's this, there's these seasons, right? There's these seasons that the, that the Spirit kind of puts in our life where we're living and we're loving and we're giving and we're sacrificing and we're, and we're sold out. I mean, we've counted the cost, right? We're cross-bearing, sword-raised, hand to the plow, not looking back, following Jesus with our whole life, but then there are seasons where we feel like there is resistance to that fire, where we doubt, or we get distracted, or we think, you know what, I'm just too busy for that work, or, or we think, you know, it's not worth it, or, or I have to build this other thing, I mean, I have, to, I have to take care of these bills, and I have to take care of this thing, and, and, and I'm not necessarily seeking first the kingdom of God, but rather I'm seeking first to build my own kingdom. And so we're tempted to compromise. That's the temptation. We're tempted to, to, to give up on some of those spirit-led, kingdom-minded dreams that we had and the eternal fire for reaching the nations or even reaching our neighbors has been, has been kind of snuffed out by this, this temporary cares of the world. I've got things to do. And so instead, we pursue a little bit more of me time. Anyone like me time? And some of that temptation, it just comes from our own flesh, to be honest with you. Some of that temptation comes from our own desires. And the Bible tells us that actually we're at war actually within ourselves. And so when we give in to that temptation, we, we find ourselves buying and spending and, and, and seeking after the things of this world like, like, like a lure and a fish going after that lure or the worm, not never realizing that on the end of that is a hook and a barb that's going to snare you. And so, and so if we're able to, by the Spirit, the Bible says, that by the Spirit, if we're able to put to death those desires of the flesh, then what happens is comes different types of temptations, temptations of the enemy. And what we need to understand, first and foremost, is that everyone is tempted. Everyone is. In the garden... Adam and Eve, tempted. And they were tempted by taking God's word and just changing it a little bit. Did God actually say that you can't have that? Jesus, the perfect, blameless, sinless son of God, was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And in Matthew 4, it says that the spirit led him up into the wilderness to be tempted. And then it says he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. 
Yeah, you think? And so the tempter came to him and said, if you are, make note of that, if you're actually the son of God, may I make a suggestion? If you really are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written. And so what he was tempted with was the temptation to, to just doubt himself, right? Doubt, doubt your identity. Are, are you really the son of God? I mean, if you are the son of God, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to push you on that. If you really are who you say you are, then, then he's challenging not only his identity, but to his call. If you are the son of God, then I want to tempt you to use your power, use what God has given you for yourself, Use it for your comfort. Use it to satisfy your belly. Aren't you hungry? And so Jesus is tempted to compromise his identity and his call and his power. And then he's tempted to compromise his worship. In verse 9, the devil says, but if you worship me, I will give you. If you, if, you, if you worship me, look at all of these promises. Look at all of this world. Look at all of these kingdoms that you'll have. And the scripture tells us that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, and to accuse, and to discourage the saints day and night with temptation and with trial. And Jesus always responds with, it is written. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says, therefore... Let any one of you who thinks that he can stand, he says, take heed, lest he fall. He says, be on guard, take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. In other words, be on guard. In other words, if you think you're, you're above temptation or you're beyond temptation, he says, don't be fooled because you will fall. He says, in other words, be on guard because these temptations that actually come against us are actually really, really common. He says, you, you, they actually start to look like normal behavior. And people will say things about these temptations, but everybody's doing it. What's the big deal? And that's the temptation. But here's the good news, verse 13. But God is faithful. Everyone say, God is faithful. It says, but God is faithful, and he, meaning God, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but when the temptation comes, he, God, God will also provide. That's good news. That God will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God's faithfulness is seen in the perfect work and perfect saving power of Jesus Christ for us. And so through the grace that comes in Jesus Christ, God has provided a way of not only escaping that temptation, but also escaping the wages of sin, which is death. And so only through the grace of Christ would we, any of us be able to endure when temptation comes our way. And so today, what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 6 
is that Nehemiah has committed his life to serving God. He is a godly man. He has sacrificed greatly. He is called by God to rebuild a city, to gather the people from his own town, to unite them for the work of God, for the glory of God. And the Bible says that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And so if God has called him and God is with him, then that means that rebuilding should actually go really, really smooth, right? Because you know that God is with you when life is easy, right? No. Actually, the opposite is more biblically accurate. When you're following close to God's call, that's when a lot of recoil and opposition starts to come your way. And so Nehemiah is called by God. He's committed to God's work. He's committed to God's people. He's committed to the glory of God. And Nehemiah is faced with constant trials, constant temptations, pushbacks, opposition. And the enemy attacks the work. But when he can't attack the work, then he attacks the character. Having his hand upon the Lord and the Lord upon him, that just simply means the darts of the enemy are pointed right at you. And I point this out because I want us to understand how honest the Bible is. Do you love the honesty of the Bible? I hope you do, because we live in a dishonest world. Like, like if you just follow someone on Instagram, you get the Instagram life. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, if, if Nehemiah was written just as an Instagram story, Right, what you would see, you would see Nehemiah's social media account only with the highlights of the wall, right? It, it, it tells us today in chapter six that they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. That may be the greatest miracle in the Bible. All right, and so you're gonna see Nehemiah in the, in the Instagram story, right, taking a selfie with the wall behind him saying like, 52 days, baby, we did it, yeah, uh, go Jesus, or hashtag cup-bearing builder, right, we did it. He's got a glass of wine in his hand and say, everything's so sweet, right? But, but actually, God doesn't want us to just simply live the highlight reel. He wants us to understand that even though we're following God, life will not actually be easy at all. And so the truth is, some days we get roses, some days we get rubble. You know that, right? Some of you, you're in a good week or a good month or a good season, and some of you are probably in one of the hardest seasons of your life. But the truth is we ought to guard our heart at all times. Lest we get swept away in the temptation to pursue a life of ease, rendering the people of God ineffective and the purpose of God not moving forward. And so what I'm telling you is that your constant trial and temptation may not be evidence that you're doing anything wrong, but rather that you're doing something right. In fact, trials and temptations if they've gone quiet, if they've gone still in your life, either you're not paying attention or the enemy views you as not a threat at all for the kingdom of God. Enemy will say, just go to church all you want. Doesn't bother me at all. Sing songs. It's cute. But when temptation comes, it means we're actively on mission with God. And the truth is, it's easier to share the gospel today than it will ever be. 
want you to think about that. Culture in the world is becoming more and more anti-Christ. And so it's actually easier today to share the gospel than it ever will be in any other time that we live. So the question is, how do we rebuild a family and remain faithful in this life? How do we launch a legacy in the face of all the trials and temptations? Well, let's get into Nehemiah chapter six. We're gonna see some things here. Chapter six, starting in verse one, it says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, oh, there they are again. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. Everyone say enemies. These guys keep showing up, right, over and over again, coming against the work of God, coming against the men of God, coming against uh, the church of God. And so here they are again trying to thwart the plans that God has for his city and his people. And so Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left. Although at that time I had not really set up the doors and the gates, so it's almost done. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, hey, Come, let's meet together. Let's go to that, uh, the place of Hakarim and the plains of Ono. Everyone say, oh no. Okay, that's exactly right. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? And they sent to me four times this way, and I answered them in the very same manner. So here's the lure, all right? Here's the temptation. Nehemiah, why don't you and me and Tobiah and Geshem, you know, all get together and for a beer or something? Let's just, you know, get, let's just get together and, and we can have some coffee and we can talk about things and, and you know, just kind of catch up. You know, I want to hear about the progress. How are things going, right? I know this great little place, right? It's, it's right down on the plains of Ono. It'll be my treat. It will be fun. But really, it's a trap. And so it says that it intended me to do harm. So I told him no. Nehemiah says, I'm busy with the work of the Lord. I have to keep to the task. And they kept asking four more times. Hey, come on, let's just get together. Hey, come on down to Ono. Hey, why don't we, why don't we just kind of meet halfway, you know, and let's, let's do this thing. Hey, you know, it should be good. And each time Nehemiah answers in the same way. So how does Nehemiah not give in to the traps and the temptation to just simply be distracted with the other things that are going on, uh, particularly the enemy attacks in his life? How does Nehemiah fight against that? Well, I'll tell you this. Clarity of call helps fight against the temptation of destructive distractions. Clarity of call helps fight against the distractions of destructive, uh, of destructive distractions. And so knowing, knowing what we're called to do helps us fight. The distractions of the day, hey, why don't you just, you know, take some time for yourself, just kind of come on down, right? And so if you think about what we're called to as Christians, we're called to follow Christ, 
We're called to help others trust and treasure Jesus or follow Christ. And so when we pursue that call of Christ, the enemy is relentless and constantly nagging at it. Hey, come on, just stop doing that. Hey, stop going that way. Hey, stop serving that way. Hey, stop sharing that good news. Hey, stop talking to people about the Bible. Hey, just stop praying for them. Hey, just, just kind of give up. Hey, it's a waste of time. You're not making any real progress here. Just come on, just take a break. Don't do that anymore. Come on down. Just stop the work. Come off the wall. Pull down, pull down. You know, put down your cross for a while. Stop following that guy. Notice the invitation is disguised as hospitable friendship. It looks like Nehemiah, I mean, we're, we're friends, right? I mean, we're willing to meet you halfway. You've been building this wall. You've been working so hard. Just come on down to the plains of Ono. Relax a bit. Celebrate. Let's settle our differences. I know we've had some disputes in the past, but that's just... That's just that thing. Now, although this request seems hospitable, we need to understand that Ono is actually 27 miles away from the city of Jerusalem, which may be easy with a Tesla with one charge, but uh, in this day at Nehemiah, it's not an easy task, right? I mean, he has to go on foot. He has to go by himself. It would take more than a day to actually go that distance, and so not only uh, that, that it's going to take him some time, but this, this uh, place of Ono, it, it's a little valley near the border of Samaria, which are also enemies at this time. And so if he would go there, it would not only uh, be a hard journey, it not only would take him time, but if he went there, it would leave him vulnerable and alone. Everyone say vulnerable and alone. So if he leaves this place and meets them halfway, what's happening is it's going to leave him vulnerable and alone. And let me just tell you that many of the temptations of the enemy come by enticing us to vulnerable places and situations that will leave us by ourselves. And so many temptations come to isolate us, right? Isolate us. Pull us away from the family of God. Pull us away from the work of God. Pull us away from the house of God. Pull us away from, from, from the work of God, promising, you know, rest and mental and emotional and physical escape. The plains of Ono are beautiful. Just stop the work. Come on out. We'll have some fun. And so when you get to Ono, you realize and say, oh no, where am I? What have I done? But by God's grace, Nehemiah realizes that this is intended to do him harm, and he remains steadfast to the work that God has called him to. Now, I know that not many of us are actually receiving invitations to go to an actual place of Ono, and it seems, though, we are facing the same situations, the same temptations in our lives. And so what I mean by that is they're tempting Nehemiah to take his attention off of what God has called him to do. Do you ever feel that? You ever feel the pull and the temptation to just simply busy yourself with other things rather than what God has called us to do? You ever felt like we, we take our time and our energies and our attention to putting them on something that's very, very reasonable? 
right? But ultimately, we are set up to lead us to destruction, to, to actually sidetrack us from the mission of God and sidetrack us from what God has called us to do. And the truth is, we all at multiple levels face that very temptation daily. Do you not feel it daily or even more than daily to say, hey, hey, you know, think about, you know, don't think about like the things of God. Just think about what you've got going on in your, just think about all the, all the stress you have. Think of all the bills that have to be paid. Think of all the things. I got no time for God. I got no time for the call of God. I got no time to pursue God. And so God's call is to set our hearts and our minds on Christ, living for the glory of Christ by being led and transformed by the spirit of Christ. And that's what he's called every Christian. But what happens is then we experience temptation of distraction. And we then use all of our energy, all of our time, all of our resources to seemingly harmless promises and mindless entertainment of comfort. Oh, I just want to relax. Until we look up and realize we have no more time and we have no more energy and we have no more resources to spend advancing the kingdom of God and we just give God leftovers, if anything at all. And we say, you know, it's no big deal. Oh no, it's harmless. Oh no, it's just meeting the culture halfway. It's what everybody's doing. It's what Christianity is supposed to look like in America. And it turns out that we've taken our eyes and our hearts off the mission of God and we've placed them onto endless scrolling through the culture. Hours and hours will go by with mindless, purposeless activities just so we can relax for a bit. Not realizing we've been lured on the plains of Ono and they're actually intended for our harm. How many of us are tempted to seek first the comforts of life rather than seeking first the kingdom of God? Until we realize we've traded what God has called us to do for him and the distracting promises of this world, we'll just say, you know, Pastor, just need a little bit more for myself. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more buffer. I just need a little bit more in my savings account. I just need a little bit more space. I need a little bit more time away. I just need a little bit more achievement in my career. And then, and then when, I, when I get just a little bit more, then I'll turn back and, and, and I'll, I'll start doing the things of God. And lo and behold, they never come. How many times are we tempted to simply be friends of the world, not realizing that we're making ourselves enemies of God? That's James 4.4. We're tempted to say, we want God's peace. We want God's blessing. There's not a person in the planet that would say, I don't want God's blessing. We want God's blessing. We want God's peace. We want God's comfort. We want God's provision. And, And we just want to forsake God. Well, I want the blessings of God, but, but I, I don't really want God himself. And so we've been tempted and lured away from our relationship with God with empty distractions outside the gate. And we're tempted to meet our enemy halfway, and they intend it for harm. Meeting halfway 
halfway from the security, halfway from the safety of God, halfway from the people of God, halfway from the truth of God, tempting us to go outside, leaving us exposed and vulnerable and alone. I heard this quote this week. It says, if there is one word to describe those who are able to resist temptation and make a profound impact for the kingdom of Christ, it is the word focus. Understanding the call of God upon your life, understanding what the Spirit wants to do in and through you, and remain focused to that call. And so I have to ask, is my mind, is my heart focused on who I am in Christ and what God has called me to do? Or is my heart just simply being lured and swept and tempted by the temptations of the world to just put my minds on everything, everything other than Christ? And I'll be honest with you, like some, some of us, like some of you, you've just been goofing off in the plains of Ono for way too long. And we've just been playing church, and, and, and so we rarely even have time to, to worship with the church or time to even participate in God's mission that he's called the church into. And so Nehemiah, I just want to tell you, he fights this temptation to be lured away, understanding God's call on his life, and the call that he has is, is valuable, and it is eternal, and it is meaningful. And so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to set my eyes fixed on Christ. So from the moment that Christ saved me, it has only been God's grace that he's given me any type of focused attention toward what he's called me to be. But what I've seen over and over again is that the passion of zeal that happens in so many young believers and Christians starts to get quenched out and pulled away Temptation of distraction, of just simply living the good life. And so the church has left the call of Christ and the mission of Christ, standing in the desert plains of Ono, wondering, how did we get here? How have we become the American church? I want you to remember this quote by John Piper. I'll read it to you. I thought it was so great. He says, the greatest enemy against a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetites for Christ, but rather the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality. It's the mind-numbing activities that we drink in Every single night. I think we've forgotten who God's called us to be. And I think we've forgotten how God has empowered us by the Spirit to glorify him in all that we do. Because we've been lured to this special place of comfort. We just add church to it. We must ask the Lord to forgive us Renew in us an appetite for him, a hunger for righteousness, and a fire to stand steadfast in who we are and what he's done. And so I tell you that to tell you that the clarity of call is the only way we can resist the empty, fruitless temptations around us, seeking us to lure us away. Let's keep going. Verse five.
in the same way. Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, you know, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it. That's, people are saying. That you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now you should come. Let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their, hand, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will be done. But now, O oh God, I pray, strengthen my hands. If the enemy cannot distract you, with empty temptations and worldly pleasures and comforts, he will try to render you ineffective by coming against your very reputation. This is gossip. This is slander. And this is the, the task of creating fear among the people. Gossip is sharing information that isn't yours to share. Slander is using untrue information against someone's reputation. Both are the work of evil. Seeking to cause people harm. Seeking to cause the work of God harm. And so I pause right there because some of you have experienced exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced gossip and slander trying to nullify someone's reputation so that, so, that, so that God's work would stop. So how do we fight? How do we fight against the temptation to just simply rise up and throat punch people who are gossiping and slandering? How many of you want to do that? Well, Nehemiah, Nehemiah he, he fights with knowing and standing in the truth. That's what he does. When the enemy of gossip and slanders come against us, how it works is it starts by creating allies, starts talking behind the shadows. It is reported. People are saying, this is what they're talking about. And in a society that is quick to jump to judgment, in a world that is quick to throw the stones of condemnation on limited, unreliable information, what it does is it brings fear of what others might think about us and news might get out and the work is going to stop. Not only that, but the enemy creates the lies without paying any attention to what is actually true. And so Nehemiah, he's faced with fear the king is going to get words of this. He's my boy. He's my friend. I worked with him for years, and he's going to get word of this and then stop the work. But Nehemiah, he presses into the truth of God's word, and he reminds himself not simply who he is, but whose he is. He knows that he's God's chosen. He knows that he's working to seek and honor God with everything that he does. And he actually responds with this statement. 
actually no such things that you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. And then he prays, God, let me stay the course. God, strengthen my hands. There is a strength and there is security comes when you know the truth. When you know what God says about you. When you know what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. When you know what God has called you to do, it doesn't matter what they say because it only matters what God says. And so in, in, in this post-truth culture, we live in a, in a post-truth culture, meaning you just make up whatever you want to make up. In a culture that does not seek the truth, but rather goes with whatever they've been taught or sold or said or social media, listen to me, only those who know the truth of God's word will be able to stand against the schemes and the lies of the world. Now I say that because I am so passionate that the best way to arm the people of God is with God's word. What is the source and what is the strength of truth? Let me tell you, it is this. It is the Bible. And so the question is not, what do you believe? The question is, why do you believe what you believe? Does it line up with God's word? And so 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All the Bible is God's word and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete. Say complete. So complete and equipped for every good work. If we need the word of God, we need to be in the word of God to teach us. We need the word of God to reprove us and correct us and train us so that we will be complete. So when the attacks of the enemy and the lies and the falsehoods come our way in a post-truth reality of culture, we can say, no, no, no I'm actually no God's word. Ephesians 6.10, finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God. How many of you have heard that before? This is, this is a battle. This is not peacetime. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There are schemes, there are temptations, there are lies, there are things that contradict God's word. And so what we need to do as Christians is put on a full armor. Then he goes on and he lists different pieces of the armor. But he says we put this on to withstand the schemes, the lies, the temptations, the lures, the deceptions. And he says, I want you to start by putting on the belt of truth. Wrap ourselves in God's word. If we know God's word, we won't be tempted to believe lies. Not only that, but we are to put on the readiness given by the gospel. 
And what that means is we are ready to take every thought, every idea, and compare it to God's word and the gospel. And so we aim ourselves to the gospel. We weight ourselves in the gospel. We put on ourselves the belt of truth so that we know what is true by God's word. And then at the end, he says that you are to arm yourselves with the sword of the what? The spirit. The sword of the spirit is, it says, the word of God. Some of you are trying to figure out how to navigate temptations, traps, and false deceptions of this life, yet you are completely unarmed. Because you get your theology from the internet and not the book. You're completely unarmed because you're getting swept away, falsehoods and lies, and if you realize you're on the plains of Ono, alone and separated from the truth of God. And what breaks my heart more than anything else is that the American church is no longer equipped with God's word. Which means we're not equipped for every good work because so many have put down the trowel and don't know the call of God upon their lives and we can no longer stand against the lies and the schemes of the enemy because we've put down the sword. In an earlier chapter, in chapter four, it says that they had the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. That means they knew God's call and they fight with God's word. You're taking notes, you write this one down. Those who know the truth of God's word will know the voice of the Lord. And he will be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy that are seeking to divide, harm, and stop the work of God. We must be a people of the word. Okay. Let's go. Verse 10. So when I went into the house of Shema, the son of Delilah, the son of Mehabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let's meet together in the house of God. If you won't come out to us, let's go to the house of God. Let's go to the house of God within the temple and then let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could actually go into the temple and live. I will not go in. And I understood that I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat hired him. It's another scheme. It's another trap. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they come to give me a bad name in order to taunt me 
Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets, prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So this is the trap. They're trying to get Nehemiah to sin, but what does Nehemiah use against their evil schemes and false prophets? The word. You may not see it. But the temptation actually comes from men of God. These are prophets. These are messengers. So there are those in the church who think you are are reliable and trustworthy. And so Nehemiah knows God's word for himself. He knows that this is a false prophet with false teaching because what they're asking him to do to go into the temple is actually a contradiction to God's word. And so they're called a, a godly man urging him to do something contrary to Numbers 18. You can read it yourself. Numbers 18, 17, it talks about the temple. And he realizes, well, the Bible tells me that I should not go in there. But it also tells me that I shouldn't be afraid. Not only does he know the scripture, but he obeys the scripture. He obeys God's word and over and above the commandments of the religious people, the religious men that are coming to try and trap him. He says, I I, I see that you're a religious man, but what you're saying doesn't line up with God's word. And so what I want to urge us is if we're going to resist temptations, that we don't believe everything that we hear from religious pulpits and platforms, not even this one, if it doesn't line up with this. But test everything. Test everything according to God's word. Unfortunately, many of us had grown up under false teaching and didn't even realize it because we didn't know God's word. Where spiritual leaders would use the Bible and manipulate the Bible and and to beat people with the Bible to bring about fear and submission. Anyone ever grow up in that setting? And so what happens is instead of people walking away from just simply the church and the reluctant system and the Bible beating a mentality, what they do is they end up walking away from God. And so Nehemiah could have looked at that prophet and said, oh, you're supposed to be a man of God. I don't want anything to do with this faith anymore. But he stands on God's word instead. And so listen, if you grew up in that In that type of system, let me just tell you, listen to me right now, that God loves you. That he loves you, and because of the work of Jesus Christ for you, God wants a relationship with you. Listen, not to control you, but to lead you by his grace and by his love in knowing the liberating work that Christ has done for you. What Jesus has done for us is liberating. It's freeing. It's not begrudging. It's not religious beating. It's freeing. And Nehemiah knows God, and Nehemiah knows God's word, and he knows that this temptation, even coming from a man of God, comes from a place of fear. And lies and false prophets stand on fear, namely the fear of rejection. You're not good enough. You've got to do these things. And so the enemy comes and tempts you and tries to ruin your reputation to try and go to God yourself. And and the enemy says, no, 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 you're not good enough. God will never accept you. 
You know what you need? You need to just simply compromise the scripture. You know what you need is you just need to water down God's word. You know what you need is, is not really preach the full counsel, but just preach the parts that people really like. And so the culture will accept you. And so people will accept you. Just, just meet us halfway. And so the enemy manipulates the truth of God's word so they control people with fear. But Nehemiah will not give in to fear. God has not given him a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. And he says, should a man such as I run away? I know who I am. I know who God's called me to be. I know what he's done for me. And so I will not fear because God is with me. And so he stands upon the scripture-built identity. He doesn't create his own self-esteem puffed up, uh, I'm a good guy. But he stands on the scripture built on identity that keeps him from compromising with false prophets. All right, let's land this plane. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day in the month of Yule. In 52 days, that's a record. They built the wall in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and greatly and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let me just tell you this. Even though the wall was rebuilt, the opposition and the temptation will continue. Okay? In chapter 7, verse 2, it says that he surrounded himself with God-fearing men. Knowing that the wall was complete, the work was done, I still need God-fearing men around me. And so he established a, a godly community around him. Let me ask you, if you're going to fight temptation, you're going to need a godly community around you that is actually foundational in God's word. You're like, can't I just go to church and be a good boy? You'll be unarmed. You'll be vulnerable. And so he establishes a godly community around him so that when temptation comes to stop moving forward, give in, don't continue with the legacy of God, of the call upon your life. When the life of following Jesus is a life that faces with temptation, We'll constantly be tempted. We need people around us. All right. Even Jesus was tempted. Jesus was also tempted in every way that we are. Yet, the Bible says that Jesus was without sin. There was actually a time in his ministry where he was uh, healing people and people were coming to him. And people from all the surrounding areas were coming. So much so that there was just a massive amount of people. And, and, and Jesus needed to go and pray. And so he goes away and prays. And then he comes back in the morning. And all of his disciples are like, where have you been, Jesus? Look at all these people. They're all here to be healed by you. They're, they're all healed to help you. Let, let's stay here. Let's stay in this area. Let's continue to minister to these people. And you know what Jesus says? He says, no. I got to keep going. And it says that he turns his face to Jerusalem. And so Jesus was so confident in his call that he actually turned away from what was good for what was best. He knows the reason that he came. It was not to just simply make their life more comfortable, but to die for sin and give them life eternal. 
And so Jesus faced the temptation, Jesus faced trials, Jesus faced things of many kinds, yet never compromised. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and instead of sinning, he stood upon God's word. And when that didn't work, guess what happened? People grumbled about Jesus, people gossiped about Jesus, and even slandered by religious leaders who tried to discredit Jesus. Who is this man? And they mock Jesus, the crowds. He comes, Jesus enters in, the crowds start mocking him, yet Jesus stood firm on who he was and what he was called to do. Jesus faced fearful situations, namely in the garden at night before his betrayal. He's sweating drops of blood and he's saying, thy will be done. Isaiah 53, it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, that he was like a lamb to the slaughter, like a, like a sheep before his shears. He was silent. He stayed the course. Even on the cross, even on the cross, he's feeling forsaken. He's feeling abandoned. And so what does he do? He stands on God's word by quoting Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My enemies surround me. My mouth is dry. And so he's standing again on the scriptures even until the end, until finally Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Followed by the words, it is finished. The Bible says in that moment, Jesus endured the cross with joy because he stood upon God's word. He stood upon God's call. He stood upon who he was as God's son. And he was obedient to this call, even to the point of death. And so let me just tell you, let us trust that where we are weak, Jesus is strong. When and where we fail and fall short, Jesus remains victorious and faithful. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet he was without sin. So let us, everyone say let us. Let us then with confidence draw near. Say draw near. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. That's where the high priest, Jesus Christ, sits. He sits on a throne of grace. So let us draw near to this throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of great need. It is not our own ability and it is not our own righteousness that gives us confidence to draw near to Christ. What we need is mercy and what we find is grace in the throne of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus says that when you receive the truth, the truth will set you free. And so listen to me, friends. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, 
Jesus will set us free by his grace and the wages of sin that is death will be no more. Jesus will forgive us and he sets us free from the condemnation that we deserve and Jesus then gives us by his grace the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. And the Spirit will then fight with us uh, against accusations and lies and temptations of the enemy, not because we're perfect, but because we're covered by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect one. And so because of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us, we are now called by Christ to share this gospel with the world. Yet we are constantly tempted to not do that. So as the band comes, I want to ask, have you been more concerned with temporary rather than the eternal? Let me say this. I think where we've missed it as a church is that we've compromised the truth of Christ and stopped building on the truth of Christ And so we have stopped sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. And we have been tempted to build a watered-down gospel on the plains of Ono. And what has happened is that churches have simply become spiritual consumers, thinking that church is about us rather than about Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks the most important question. He says, who do you say that I am? The disciples, they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some some say this, some say that. And Jesus stops and he looks right at him. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter. You could just see Peter. Peter, he looks back at Jesus and he says, You, you are the Christ. Christ means Savior, Messiah, Lord. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And that is the truth. And Jesus says, you're right. And upon this rock, I will build my church. This is the foundational truth that everything stands. Jesus, in a way, he says, I am this cornerstone on which the church will be built. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And upon me, everything will move forward upon this truth. And then what does he say? He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But listen to me. He says, the gates of hell what are gates for 
gates are to keep people out and to keep people in. And so the gates of hell are to keep people in bondage and to keep them out of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The gates of hell are to keep people away from hearing the truth about Jesus Christ and to keep them out of receiving Jesus. And so when the church is tempted to stop the work and put down the trowel and stop the word from going forward by putting down the sword and we stop pursuing the call of Christ and stop sharing the word of Christ, only then will the gates stand. But if the church would receive the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ and he is the son of God, and receive Jesus and stand on that gospel and arm ourselves with that truth and focus our lives to that work that is aimed toward proclaiming the truth of Jesus as the Christ and the only Son of the living God. Listen, the gates will not stand. And so if a church would just simply be tempted and deluded and deceived to just simply come in and do church and then just go about all the other trivial things of life. We have not done our part. Let us stand on the truth of God. Let us as the church be diligent to know the call of God, who God's made us to be, and let us without fear trust the word of God above all things. Let's be a church that prays for that. Let's go. Oh God, we are tempted in more ways than we even know. We are lured by cares of this world more than we even realize. And so Jesus, today I pray that you would reignite a fire within our bones, a desire and a passion for your word, that we would lead and we would walk by the Spirit, that we would continue to know who you are and what you've called to us to do and so Jesus there's nothing nothing we can do to deserve your grace and so God empower us today to repent to turn from our sin trust the cross and the resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins your word says we will be saved save us save us from our own selves save us from our own religion save us from our own mediocrity and implant in us 
the truth that we are truly sons and daughters of the Most High King of Christ by faith alone. In Jesus' name. today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ that's where you start Jesus wants a relationship with you